Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, an unprecedented start to the wildfire season. This is a difficult time for many Canadians. With more than 2,200 wildfires already this year and many more expected to come, does Canada have the resources to fight back? And is this a clear result of climate change? We will speak to the Environment Minister, Stephen Guilbeault. Also... It's important for me to acknowledge that this work is not about reports or numbers or checking boxes, it's about people. A status update on the government's response to the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Four years later, is Ottawa doing enough to respond to its calls for justice? We will speak with Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller. And... A damning report on the state of child welfare in Nunavut will get some reaction from Territorial Representative MLA Janet Pitsuliak-Brewster. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Across the country, firefighters are engaged in challenging battles trying to put out and contain hundreds of wildfires from British Columbia to Nova Scotia. Take a look at this map drawn from data shared today by government officials and it shows more than 400 fires, half of which are considered out of control. Already this has been an unprecedented year and the Prime Minister is warning it is far from over. With the given projections, it is expected that we have enough resources to cover the summer. If things get worse, uh, we, have, uh, we are developing contingency plans and we will, of course, make sure that we are there, whether it's leaning more on international supports, whether it's uh, standing up uh, other resources, uh, we will be there to ensure that all Canadians are protected right through this summer. With more, we're now joined by the Minister for the Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Guilbeault. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, we heard it in the news conference today. Uh, more than 2,200 forest fires so far this season. More than 3 million hectares already burned down. Can you put that into context for us? Just how unusual is this fire season so far? It's very unusual. Uh, if we look at the areas that have been burned in Canada so far, it's about 10 times the normal average for forest fires. So it is way above uh, average, and it's, it is likely, and what our modelers are telling us, or what our scientists are telling us, is that the conditions in, in, in June, in July, and August will continue to be very, um, very susceptible to, to have more forest fires. So it, it is likely going to be a very difficult year from that perspective. So if it's going to be more difficult, Minister, are there enough resources to respond? Because right now uh, I'm thinking of, of the current fires in Nova Scotia, Alberta, Quebec. Uh, we have uh, firefighters coming in from the United States, uh, all the way from South Africa, coming to help. Will there be enough to respond if the expectation is that this is going to be a very bad fire season? So two things I'd like to, to, to say on that, well, maybe three things. First, I'd like to thank uh, profoundly all of our dedicated uh, force fire fighters uh, across the country who are helping us with this. 
it, it has already been a difficult start of, uh, of year. In Alberta, we almost have already more forest fires now than we did in 2016, which was one of the worst years ever. Um, Nova Scotia, worst forest fires in the history of the, of the province. Uh, Quebec, the Quebec government said, listen, there's too many, we can't handle them by ourselves. Uh, but we, in the past, uh, Canadian firefighters uh, have helped other countries, and, and now they're returning the favor. Uh, as you've said, you know, the United States, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, France, uh, as also uh, the, uh, President Macron has announced that they were sending in forest, uh, forest firefighters. Uh, and the second thing is, just last Friday, the Prime Minister asked uh, the, the chief of CAF, uh, if, we, if we anticipated to have all the resources necessary from a Canadian Armed Force point of view to, to, to fight the forest fires over the summertime, and, and our assessment is we do, but obviously this is a situation we will be following very closely. Mm -hmm. Now, in the meantime, uh, you, you noted the current fires burning in Alberta, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. What kind of aid is being extended for people in those provinces in the affected areas? Um, the aid ranges from uh, obviously making sure that we have all of the resources to, to ensure that we can relocate temporary, relocate people, we can evacuate people. Um, Minister Gould uh, was there today at the press conference with the Prime Minister saying that Service Canada will accelerate the demand for people who need, for example, EI because they've lost their, their work. We will facilitate if they don't have all of the paperwork because those papers might have, might have burned. Um, all the way to immigration uh, to, to, to facilitate travel documents for those people who would who would have lost it. Um, so there's a, it is really a all hands on deck approach. Whether you're at, whether it's Minister Wilkinson at Natural Resources, me at Environment, many different government departments are, are working closely with our provincial counterparts uh, across the country and Indigenous communities. We we know that there's about 16 Indigenous communities across the country that are directly being affected by the forest fires. So we're working closely with them as well. Now, I wonder, do you see this as a clear example of climate change and how it's being manifested in this country? And if so, how do we as a country adapt to what we're now seeing? So the first thing is that we, we know from a scientific perspective that because of climate change, there will be more and more forest fires. Now, there is this thing called the, the, the science of attribution. Can we attribute specific extreme natural event to climate change? And, and I was speaking to our scientists just last Friday about this. And before it would take a few months to be able to make that determination, where science is, is advancing so much that in a, in a number of weeks, we should be able to make, to make that determination, whether or not there is a clear link between what we're seeing in terms of forest fires and climate change. And thirdly, um, to, to, to your last point, how do we prepare, how do we help Canadians in Canada be better prepared to face the impacts of climate change? Well, it's by doing things like what we presented in, in, in last December, the federal action plan on, uh, on adapting to climate change, which was uh, deemed by the Canadian Insurance Bureau as, as world-leading. It's, it's a federal response to how will we work with, with Canadians to help them prepare to climate change. We're currently working with provinces, territories, Indigenous nations, municipalities, private sector companies, to create the first ever national adaptation plan. So how do federal government has a lot of things, uh, a lot of things that we can do, but we can't do everything. We need to work with province, we need to work with territories and other partners. And that's what we will be unveiling in, in the near future to, to help Canada and Canadians be better prepared to face the impacts of climate change. But the last thing is, the more we reduce our climate pollution, the less climate change we will have in the decades to come. 
And obviously, the less we do that, the more we will have to adapt, the more we will have forest fires and hurricanes and, and floodings. And unfortunately, this is something the Conservative Party of Canada doesn't seem to be able to understand. Minister Guilbeault, I really appreciate the time this evening. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. Four years ago, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls tabled its final report, and in it, 231 calls for justice. Well, today, the Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations talked about his latest progress report on the federal government's response. Take a listen right now to Mark Miller. We released our second Federal Pathway Annual Progress Report. It demonstrates the unwavering commitment and efforts from over 20 federal departments and agencies to end violence against Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBQI plus people. Over the last year, we've also continued to advance the priorities outlined in the National Action Plan and respond to calls for justice directed at the federal government. Notwithstanding, it's important for me to acknowledge that this work is not about reports or numbers or checking boxes, it's about people. With more, we're now joined by the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Mark Miller. Minister, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Michael. Now, ahead of your annual uh, progress report, we did hear from the Native Women's Association. And when addressing your government's response to the missing and murdered calls to action, uh, they described federal efforts, at this point at least, as a failure. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, you know, I don't think we're where we really should be as a country or as a government, Michael. Uh, this is a tragedy that's ongoing. Uh, I don't think it's gotten better. And in fact, probably gotten measurably worse since coming out of COVID for Indigenous women and girls and members of the LGBT community that are much more vulnerable than someone like me when they walk the streets of a city uh, or, or, or anywhere else in this country. Uh, and we do absolutely need to do more. Uh, part of the response that the federal government, the federal pathway that the government has put forward is to issue a yearly report that shows progress. What I've tried to do this year contrary to past years, is really to tie that progress into specific calls for justice, because really people want those calls for justice answered um, and, and, and explained if we're, not, if we're not answering them. And so there's an effort in transparency at this time of year to make sure people actually see what's going on and see you know, what is going well, what's going badly, and, and anywhere in between. I think where we've seen progress is, you know, obviously, the. The massive investments the government has put, my own department has put $100 million into infrastructure, into creating safe spaces around communities. Those will save lives. But looking at the structural aspects of answering the final report into missing murdering indigenous women and girls, which isn't about a tragedy and a policy-based response to tragedy, which usually yields tragic results, but looking at a comprehensive response to human safety and security, health, identity, and culture. And those uh, are very much long-term things. This is not a tick-the-box operation. It is something that that will take years and, and, and perhaps uh, a generation to make sure that we fully answer these calls. But staying on top of that and making sure that we have accountability, which remember coming out of last year's report was something that we've heard loud and clear from Indigenous advocates, families and survivors to make sure that actually the government is being held to account. Everyone knows we've put $2 billion in, but they don't know where the money's going and they want to see results. So, and so this year, putting, in, putting forward Jennifer Moore-Rattray to 
to put in place a system where we have an ombudsperson will actually be key to that accountability that people are looking for. Okay, so, so putting billions forward, creating a, a, a more transparency and accountability process, as you say, but why hasn't there been more concrete progress made at this point? It's been four years since the missing and murdered uh, report came out, was actually tabled. Well, I think, Michael, to suggest that nothing has been done is to misunderstand exactly, one, the problem that we're facing, but also the work that's been done by so many Indigenous advocates and survivor-based organizations that four years ago weren't getting any money from the federal government and now have uh, consistent funding from the federal government um, and systems in place to make sure that that is, that is recurring on a yearly basis. I just made announcements with Minister, Mene, with Minister Lametti on Indigenous uh, liaison units, which are so key for families wanting to seek answers, uh, but this is, a, this, this is a process that will be ongoing, and to think that this will be complete after four years is, is, is to completely, as you know, misunderstand the problem. Over the weekend, I, I met with the family of Tootsie Jimmy Charlie, who came all the way from the Yukon to speak to me about their mother, who was uh, discovered in, 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 again, a dump 55 years ago. Uh, the pain is still alive, the pain is still raw, and they still want answers. So um, the worst thing we can do as a government is, is is to lie to Canadians and tell them that everything is going to be better and everything is going to be fine and it's all going to be over tomorrow. It isn't. It's a problem. It's a tragedy. Any government that wants to be taken seriously in this space needs to act accordingly. Mm -hmm. So so what would you say the, 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 the positive impact has been then? Beyond the money and the, the process that you're setting up, in terms of concrete change, even if a call to action has not been completed or a call to justice has not been met 100%, what can you point to as, I can be proud of the work I've done there? This isn't about my personal pride, Michael. I, I, I uh, have a very important job that the Prime Minister has given to me and, and, and a big runway to land a lot of, uh, a, a lot of large planes on, and, and that's what we're trying to do as a government. Um, I, look at, I, I look at the settlement that we have for, for, uh, for Child and Family Services about eliminating Canada's discrimination for children and Indigenous children in care. Uh, that is a massive game changer. Uh, the courts have highlighted as much that will actually save lives. Um, I think all of Canadians should be proud of it because that's what pushed us to do it. It wasn't, uh, wasn't governments. We, 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 we got pushed to do it and we had to answer the call. And so that's something that, um, that I think Canadians can look to, and particularly the most vulnerable segment of society, Indigenous children, that will be better served than they, than they have been even, even a year ago. Uh, and so those things are changing. What, what I've certainly heard from my uh, informal reports back from Jennifer Moore-Rattray is um, there is hope, um, let very little faith, but there is hope because people are seeing things change uh, and seeing some progress, but it is slow. And like any tragedy, we have to move quicker. Okay, need to move quicker. Is that then a priority for the next 12 months? What, where would you like to see movement before the next progress report? Um, I'd like to see movement on the accountability portion that we've heard uh, quite clearly needs to be moved on. Uh, the, the putting into place of an ombudsperson that can really hold people to account. Uh, that $2, million, $2 billion, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard. People don't trust the government, so they want to be able to have a third person that can see where those monies are going, where that progress is being made. Um, and and I want to see, I'd like to see people safe. I'd like to pe people to feel like when they walk around, they, um, they are not vulnerable to going missing and often, and often murder, and that's the case still in this country. I'd like to see, frankly, and I guess it sort of goes outside my job description, but it is a big, big chunk of what I do, awareness uh, among the rest of Canada, non-Indigenous Canada, about what those challenges are. This isn't just about Indigenous women, it's about the role of males in perpetuating that violence and a system that has created and been put into place by Canada to perpetuate that violence. There's still very little understanding about what that is in the country, um, and sadly, uh, despite the tragedy and the horror, 
uh, this in, in the public consciousness is, is, is sort of a, a niche area, and that's unfortunate because this is a whole of, this is a whole of government, federal, provincial, territorial, but also individuals in, in how they raise their own children, and, and that family responsibility uh, among non-Indigenous Canada is very, very important to raise awareness on. Well, I'm wondering if you might then agree with, again, going back to the Native Women's Association of Canada, because you're noting the fact that, yes, this is an ongoing issue, and this requires a whole-of-country approach. So, so the, the, the association is calling on the Trudeau government to declare a state of national emergency here to, to essentially expedite a whole-of-Canada response. Would you support that? Well, we've acknowledged that in the House of Commons, Michael. Uh, I th you know, as the question when we do that is, you know, a, a lot of what goes on in the House of Commons is is uh, is important, but it's actually what goes on on the streets that counts. And um, this is a national tragedy. I've acknowledged it. Uh, members of my government acknowledged it by standing up in the House of Commons and voting for that particular motion. But what people want to see is action. I think the worst thing, a larger betrayal, would be to do nothing and. Uh, we've, in this particular last budget cycle, put significant amounts in making sure that we respond in the way the federal government should to this crisis, and we need to continue investing in that. And I think people won't trust us until I, they actually see the results. Minister Mark Miller, always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thanks, Michael. As we told you last week, Canada's Auditor General filed a damning report concluding that Nunavut is failing to protect vulnerable children who have been put into the territory's care. Among the troubling conclusions, not knowing how many children were actually in care, failing to respond to cases of suspected harm, no evidence of security checks on the adults who would be in contact with children in foster homes, and no follow-up on children put into care. Here is what the Auditor General told us last Thursday. There's a, an entire department, the Department of Family Services, whose purpose is to ensure the well-being and care and protection of the children under its care, to support families and communities, and they are failing at that when they don't know how many children are there, um, and they don't have enough services offered in communities to support families. I mean, we, we saw things that, if I, if I could talk about referrals, we mm -hmm. saw when referrals come from either a police officer or a teacher or a member of the community that there's suspected harm. In 20 of the 92 cases, we saw no action activity whatsoever on that referral. And when an investigation was started, half of them were not completed. So it means that children are waiting months, uh, if not years, for the care and help that they, they need. Well, for some reaction, we're now reaching out to Janet Pitsilak-Brewster, a member of Nunavut's Legislative Assembly. Janet, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, this report from the Auditor General obviously raises uh, many troubling issues when it comes to children in care in Nunavut. Uh, but perhaps what makes this even worse is that this is not the first time that these issues have been raised. What's been your reaction to the report? Well, my, my very first concern is the troubling information that, that um, Nunavut doesn't really know how many children are in foster care right now or where they are. Uh, the numbers that the the uh, government of Nunavut gives differ from the numbers that they were that were given to the Auditor General, and uh, it's very concerning. 
Now, the premier does say that he's deeply disheartened by this report, and he says that he would establish an audit and also develop an accountability framework. Are, are you satisfied with that response? Somewhat satisfied. However, as I said, my number one concern is where are these children and what's happening in their lives right now? And and it really does concern me that that, that wasn't first and foremost in, in the premier's response with is a commitment to find all of the children who are in care and ensure that they are safe right now. I'm wondering what you are hearing from constituents uh, as this news is being shared. What's being being said to you? Because as you say, at the end of the day, these are children and the numbers are, are still unknown. Rightfully so, my con my constituents are very concerned about about what's happening in the, these children's lives and and are concerned and wondering what what's going to happen in terms of how to how to track these children down uh and and next to that is is um how how the government of Nunavut is going to implement the um the promises that that the premier has laid out in their plan of action mm -hmm. uh, what more would you like to see then uh, in in terms of specifics what do you think actually needs to be done First off, we have we have a trauma and addictions treatment center that's being built in Iqaluit, which means that that families will be able to receive uh, treatment and care at home related to the trauma that uh, the intergenerational trauma that's impacting families, which of course is what's leading to so many uh, children being removed from from the care of their parents, and that um, what we know about that is that. The baseline Inuit Health Survey in 2007-8 indicated that 50% of women and 20, uh, almost 25% of adult men at that time had experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse. And what we know about the intergenerational cycle of abuse is that it doesn't stop until people are treated for that trauma. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and that means staffing up that not not just building the infrastructure, but but training training staff to uh, to be employed at that center. And what about Ottawa, Janet? How do you think the federal government needs to to respond or, or contribute to, to to find some type of solution to this situation? What I what I can say is that that I I am very happy in in recent years uh, with with the amount of investment that Ottawa has put into into Nunavut in terms of um, specifically into Iqaluit in terms of our infrastructure. However, there are housing issues across the north that that impact the government of Nunavut's ability to ha house our citizens, as well as to importantly house the employees that we need to hire in order to uh, ensure the safety of our children. There are so many, uh, There, I think there's a vacancy rate of almost 50% uh, in, in uh, child protective services in, in the territory. And a big part of that the reason for that vacancy rate is that we have nowhere to house employees, let alone our citizens. And so an investment, further investment into building housing and infrastructure in the territory is what needs to happen 
in order to alleviate the issue of the children in care. Mm -hmm. Now, as I said, uh, this is not the first time uh, that issues around children and care have been raised in Nunavut. Uh, the first one was all the way back in, in 2011, and yet here we are with this very uh, troubling report from the Auditor General. Do you think this report will be listened to this time? Do you think it will spark some type of progress? Uh, and what's the danger if it's not? Well, you know, it, it is very concerning that the, the last two Auditor General reports actually in 2011 and 2014 weren't substantively followed up on. And a big part of that is, is because of uh, the lack of resources that the territory has in terms of uh, staffing, as I mentioned. And, and what concerns me is that the, I suppose, uh, the Auditor General took the approach of not making any further recommendations because she wants to see the recommendations from those last two reports implemented and and it's up to it's up to premier and cabinet now to take all of those recommendations from all all of the the uh, reports that the auditor general has put so much time and effort into and that that actually includes the uh, the citizens and employees who took part in that audit, well, the employees that took part in that audit, uh, you know, we we ask people to to share knowledge and solutions. Yet, if we don't actually implement those the the solutions that come from the people that work within the system, then then we're going to be chasing our tail for the the next you know decade or. Or generations. Janet and Brewster, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you for your time. A look now at the top stories making headlines today, beginning with Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault, who was on our program earlier talking about this unprecedented wildfire season. Uh, if we look at the areas that have been burned in Canada so far, it's about 10 times the normal average for forest fires. So it is way above uh, average, and it's, it is likely, and what our modelers are telling us, or what our scientists are telling us, is that the conditions in, in, in June, in July, and August will continue to be very, um, very susceptible to, to have more forest fires. In fact, at the current rate, wildfires could burn a record number of hectares this year. In Canada, there are 413 active wildfires, and officials say more than half are out of control. Some 26,000 people right across the country have been evacuated from their homes. I fully and totally understand how uh, shocked and appalled so many Canadians are. That's the Prime Minister reacting to the transfer of convicted killer and rapist Paul Bernardo to a medium security prison. The Correctional Service of Canada is now promising to review its independent decision and make sure it is appropriate and considers Bernardo's victims. Bernardo received a life sentence in 1995. He is a designated dangerous offender. We will continue to fight for these two demands. A, a plan to balance the budget to lower interest rates and inflation. And, and no new carbon tax hikes. 
Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says his party will filibuster the budget implementation bill unless those demands are met. The Conservatives have 900 amendments to the government's bill C-47. Polyev also promising long speeches and other delay tactics as that bill returns to the House. That our government will not stand by while hate and violence seek to reverse decades of progress. The federal government says it will roll out $1.5 million to boost security at Pride events. That's because of a rise in attacks and threats against the two SLGBTQI plus people. Pride groups made the request for extra funding to help pay for safety measures and insurance. And a final note on what we are watching tomorrow. David Johnston will speak again on foreign interference two weeks after his first report as the government's special rapporteur. Johnston is scheduled to testify before the House Procedures Committee. That starts Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern. We'll have it for you live at CPAC.ca and full coverage right here on Primetime Politics. And that is our program for this Monday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow, but do stay with CPAC. Esther Bejin avec l'Essentiel is up next.